You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to Chopping It Up. I'm your host, Michael Halen, Senior Restaurant and Food Service Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Listeners, you're in for a treat today. I'll be interviewing chaos strategist, managing partner, and co-founder of Results Through Strategy, Fred LaFranc. Thanks for doing this, Fred. I'm looking forward to it. So in my opinion, chaos strategist is the best title in the business. You know, How'd you come up with your title, and how does it tie into what you and your team do at Results Through Strategy? No, that, that's an interesting question. I, I Years ago, I met a woman based in New York at a conscious capitalism event, and she called herself a performance strategist. So I got to talking to her, and she described to me this concept of a zone of genius where you are at your best. It's your unique skills that nobody else has. And I spent time with her. She went through a bunch of questionnaires. I sent out emails to people asking for feedback about who I am, how I work, what do I do, what's good, what's bad. And at the end of it, she said, Fred, you bring order to disorder and uh, you go from surviving to thriving and you are basically a chaos strategist. And the first, I'll never forget the first time I hit the button to make that new title, it felt so strange. But she said, hey, Fred, there's a lot of CEOs out there, but there's only one chaos strategist. And that's how the name came about. Yeah, very cool. And, and uh, <laughs> obviously fits fits really well with uh, running a restaurant for sure. Um. So what do you find more rewarding in your work? Do you know, is it, is it helping struggling mature brands turn things around or, or is it helping small emerging brands supercharge their growth? Wow. That's like asking, which is your favorite kid? Um, they're, you know, they're both <laughs> fun for different reasons. Uh, we've done a lot of turnaround work and that's very satisfying because we've saved thousands of jobs. You know, that's, that's, you know, it really comes down to, and I'll talk more about it later on. It's all about the employees. And I spend a lot of time with employees and you see someone that's been in a company for 20, 25 years, has no hope, low horizons, and you can help give them a, a methodology or performance that changes how they approach their job and it works for the benefit of the company and aligns that their needs with the company's goals. That's a great feeling. At the same time, 
the emerging brands are a lot of fun. They're, you know, they're full of piss and vinegar, right? Nothing's, nothing's impossible. And with them, you got to sort of give them some guardrails for growth so they don't drive off the cliff because everything's possible. Oh, yeah, I'm excited. Off we go. And so the enthusiasm is wonderful, but it's sometimes like a puppy dog jumping down on your leg while it's peeing on your shoe. <laughs> so they, they have different energy <laughs> and different vibes, you know, so it's, it's, a, it's a different approach. So it's been, but they're both, they're both really, really exciting. And what we have found, it's cyclical, right? You go through the era where all of a sudden sales get you know, stunted, people lose relevance. So you get into that downgrade and people say, oh, I need some relevance again. And then you get the ones that, you know, the new and emerging brands are a lot of fun in doing it. And there's different generations. You know, the, the older brands are kind of boomer brands and the uh, newer brands are millennial brands. So it's a, it's a whole different thing. What I find most interesting, to be honest with you, is that the founders are very willing to ask for help where the older CEOs aren't. It's like they feel they have to have all the answers. Like they go, hey, I'm the president, so I should know what to do and everything. And I was a president too, you know what? I didn't know everything. And the advantage that we bring is that we bring an outside perspective uh, and we ask the kind of questions that sometimes they don't wanna ask internally. And it's very funny when we come back with conclusions, they're like, my God, where did you get this information? And I go, you. I mean, it, was, it was there, but no one ever asked. Uh, I'd say what we bring is the 30% we bring to the 70% they offer is an outside perspective, as I said earlier, a new way of looking at it, and maybe uh, an opportunity to sort of um, not get caught up in the reality. Look at the whirlwind of everyday life in this business is, is crazy. You know, I, I blame no one for that. And so it's hard to step out of that and really try and be really clear head and clear mind and go, oh, okay, now I see a path. And that's really what we try and do. Yeah, cool. And uh, I, humility is definitely a good asset to have in this business. You know, it's difficult to begin with. It's constantly changing a lot of variables. So uh, I think it's, it's very important for a good leader. Um, what's your process when you start working with a legacy brand that's kind of lost its way? Um, well, you know, it's what I've done is I have a concept that I call the tap root. And if in a, in a plant, if you ever pull up the root ball, you can strip away lots of the roots, but there's a tap root that keeps that plant alive. And it's generally the one that sprouted when it was a seed. And brands are very much that same way. So let's go back to some of those great boomer brands, you know, the TGI Fridays or Chili's of the world, or we did work with, you know, Boston Market or Friendly's and Steak and Shake, you know, old, old brands. And so the question that I asked was, when that brand first started, who was the audience? Who came in and supported that brand and resonated with the brand? And let's just say, it doesn't really matter, as an example, it's a 30-something. Uh, it might even be someone a little bit younger that's single. And you say, okay, what was it about the brand at that point in time, 1982, 1976, whatever, that really clicked with that demographic? You know, and what, was, what were the aspects of it? And then, then, then to say, God, we think we have it. Now let's ask the question for today, if I target that age consumer, what would cl click with them now? And it's very, very different. You know, so, you know, a millennial that's in his 20, he or she's in the 20s or 30s versus a boomer in 20s and 30s, whole different worldview. You know, just the biggest one is technology, of course. You know, that's been a big thing. And then other social values that have shifted. You know, there's much more concern about the planet and health and nutrition and stuff like that. I mean, boomers, you know, they were still smoking. <laughs> it, was, it was a different thing. And so that, so we come back with a, a contemporary interpretation of the brand. And, and you know, and a good example was Boston Market. We did that about 10 years ago. You know, the, you walk into a Boston Market, look like a 1980 school cafeteria. Uh, and what we did was take that hot case and turn it into a chef's cooktop. 
you know, so it looked like someone had been preparing this food for hours, which is true, uh, and, and presented it to you in a very, very attractive way. And that just changed the whole relationship they had with the brand. We took uh, the cashiers, they were wearing t-shirts that said BOST on it, B-O-S-T, it was their old ticker symbol. And they hadn't been a public company for years. And I go, really? You, you're still wearing a t-shirt that has the old ticker symbol? And it sort of looked like you couldn't afford the O in the end because it was B-O-S-T. Uh, and we put them at that time in, you know, kind of a, a you know, white button down shirt, some, some nice uh, tan slacks, an apron. And instead of the, the, the guests carrying the, the tray with their food, like, again, the like 1980s cafeteria, we brought it to your table and we used melamine and real silverware to elevate the plan. So, you know, so that was the kind of thing we try to do. To, and it really worked very, very well. I mean, it was an incredible turnaround. And we've done that repeatedly. The other thing. To be frank with you, uh, and I said this earlier, it's really the employees to turn around these brands. You know, it's like, it, it, you th I mean, you think about it. We learned something, really some hard lessons in COVID. There is no safety net in the restaurant business for employees. That's why we're still struggling with a deficit of employees. Because I realized I have no, no real benefits, no 401k, no fallback. And so what do I do? I'm going to go drive for an Uber. Or I'm going to go do something different. I'll go work for Amazon. And they have those things available in some way, shape, or form. Uber's got flexibility of schedule. Amazon has benefits, right? Those, those are the things that occur. And we spend a lot of time with employees and asking them what they need to do. Because if you think about it, if you've got kind of a, you got a, oh, I don't know, survival wage, because it's not, they call it living wage, but it's not living wage, it's survival wage, you know, 18 bucks an hour. Who can raise a family in 18 bucks an hour? A lot of people, this is their permanent job and live well. They can't live well, they just survive. Uh, and then you say, oh, we want you to smile more. We want you to get engaged with the guests. We want you to really care. And it's like, are you kidding me? How does that work? And so what we try and also do culturally is to give people hope, uh, give them some dignity, give them a sense of pride, and, and let them know that they can make a difference. I ran a Burger King franchise for several years. It was a 110-unit Burger King chain that was just doing terribly. And we implemented an incentive plan for all employees to make an extra 50 bucks a month, which was a day's wage because they're all minimum wage. Uh, and not, and it wasn't just that. It was also clean the restaurants up, give them resources, things like that. And that business turned around. Once we implemented all the changes we did, within two, three months, sales had reversed. And they had three years of double-digit sales growth. Uh, but the employees did that. Management sets the conditions and allows that and rewards them. But really, get out of the way. Let the employee be the best that they can try and be. Cool. Yeah, it, it, you know, in my experience, it seems like restaurant-level execution, you know, correlates very strongly with sales and margins, you know, chains like Darden, Texas Roadhouse are two to come to mind. And, um, you know, how, how are chains like that uh, getting their employees to buy in? Well, I'll tell you what Darden does. I mean, Darden, uh, they, they learned their lesson. There was several, you might remember better because I know you follow them. There was an announcement that they made. They were changing, I think, hours or something like that so that people wouldn't get overtime or they'll get less pay or whatever. And there was like a big backlash. A guest count just dropped. It's like people said, no way, you're mistreating the employees. We're not coming in to see you. And they pivoted very rapidly. And during COVID, they doubled down on employee engagement and education. And they, in fact, they added labor. And I'll never forget, I was at, I think it was the ICR conference. You were probably there as well, where, uh, and I'm not going to name the brand. There was a CEO of a company that said, we're eliminating busters and we're eliminating hostesses because we'll save labor. And I was like, oh my God, that is a slippery slope. And for one quarter, they saved labor. And then the second quarter, they lost gas because, it, you know, you just you got you remove service. 
Darden didn't yep. do that. They, they, they made their station size smaller. They really made sure that people were getting the best kind of service and it paid off for them. Look at the results. It's been incredible. And they've got so many chains. You can talk about, well, this one's up, this one's not. But on average, they really do a wonderful job. Uh, and and that's, that's what is sort of magical about it. This is a people business. But we can't talk out of both sides of our mouth and say people are our most important asset and then not treat them well, not, not give them something that they can allow them to, to live and support their families or, the, or have dignity as well. And I think that's the key, the, the difference that I really see. In fact, I'd say that during COVID, the companies with the, the most toxic cultures did not do well. The companies that had a healthy culture have thrived because people knew that they cared. They still went through the layoffs. They went through all the, the furloughs and so forth and so on. But they might have offered them the ability to come into the restaurant and buy food at cost. They might have given them food. They, they organized uh, among the employees and they encouraged that ways of supporting each other. I mean, it shows you care. When, you, when everything's taken away, you know, materially, what's left is your humanity. And that's the difference that we can try and do with our people. Nobody pays anyone else generally that much more than the guy down the street, but it's what you invest into them that makes a difference. Yeah, it's cool. Um, you know, to that point, culture's, culture's critical, right? And so, so how, do you, how do you rebuild culture in a chain that's in decline? Uh, well, one, you have to be honest about what the culture is like you know cultures are either conscious or unconscious you know but they they always exist uh you know when you work in a company where the leadership doesn't even go in their restaurants because it's not sort of the level of dining that they prefer and that ha that happens sadly in, in many brands um there's a problem it's a big disconnect when you walk in I, i'll never forget there was one brand that we took i think three executives to a restaurant close to their headquarters and they walked in no even knew who they were and they didn't know any employees' names because they just hadn't gone there, you know. And yet there's other brands that you walk in and it's like, you know, bees are on honey going, oh, my God, look who's here. And they're all happy and it's free. Like Norm Breaker was that way. And Norm Breaker walked into a restaurant. Everyone knew who he was and he knew who they were. And so that's the starting point of culture. My metaphor for culture is pretty straightforward. I'd say it's like we're all standing in a swimming pool. And it's everyone's job to keep the water clean. There is no peeing section in a swimming pool. Uh, and some cultures are pretty damn bad. <laughs> so it's like flotsam and you got to clean it up. And, and that's the message you have to deliver to leadership is to help them understand. And, and look, it, you, it's, it's not about neener, neener, neener. Again, I ran restaurant companies, half a dozen of them. Uh, and there were things that I didn't know. I wasn't aware of. I was ignorant to them. So it doesn't make me a bad person. It doesn't make these people bad. But it does. They may be just ignorant or unaware. And when you hold a mirror up and say, look at what this, what we see. And so, and, and this it's a reflection of what you can, but you can do something about it. Right. Uh, with the leadership team, we generally work with a tool from uh, Patrick Linkioni, who wrote that great book, the five dysfunctions of a team. And we use that tool to sort of, uh, you know, quantify culture based on the, the answers that people give. And we've done it where we can slice and dice different levels of the organization, different regions. Uh, and it's amazing. The cultures that are really strong and powerful, they score very well as red, yellow, or green. Uh, and we use it as a benchmark and then take it a year later, take it a year after that, and you see these improvements. Uh, and this beautiful, the, the, the day you see a score that everyone is green. You know, we just did one for another company out in California recently, and, the, and I haven't even shared the results of them yet, so I'm not going to name them, but the, it was medium. It was all yellow. It was good. It was a great starting point. I mean, that gives you hope. Now, if it's bad, you don't go in there and yell at them. You just say, okay, this is reality. This is what you said. And we're not going to try and figure out who answered it, what way. 
it's less addressed what those things are because it talks about you know accountability communication and, and results orientation so forth and so on and then we go through the things that you have to try and do to achieve it but it can be you we want it to be an intentional culture now part of that is recognizing that your your people are the ones who take care of your guests and if you have unhappy people you're going to have unhappy guests yeah and we work a lot on guest journeys and employee journeys and the at the end of the day danny meyer is the one who really did the best job of defining that in his, his book you know setting the table where he talks about the hospitality being 51 and the service being 49. services mechanics hospitality is the emotion people experience as a result of that service and, and the engagement of the employees and so we really create a guest journey that's based on the emotional outcome of the guest some you know it's not like the people ask questions you know the, would you prefer to return uh well that's kind of flat how about a desire to return an emotional reason you know i get i love the my the team members that take care of me they they know my name they treat me with respect the old cheers song and so you can actually define the emotional outcome and the behaviors attached to it the best example is chick-fil-a chick-fil-a understands the emotional outcome of a guest experience and trains their people to create that and once you give them that understanding, when you do this guest journey, and what we do is we go into social media, we take the best comments of all along the path of the guest experience. We take the worst comments of all and say, here's the worst experience that people have actually had in your restaurants, and here's the best. You know, they're, so they're both possible. What's interesting is most is a mixture of both. And once you make people aware of that, they're like, oh my God, so we can make a difference. So we say, what are those critical touch points to create for that point in time, if it's a sit down restaurant, how you're greeted, you know, how many times you walk at the front desk and the hosts are talking to each other, looking down at their open table screen. They don't even look at you to acknowledge that you're in front of them, you know, things like that. And so what's the feeling you have out of that? I feel ignored, so therefore I feel disgusted, right? I've scorned. Uh, versus a really warm, friendly green. How are you today? It's a beautiful day. I'm so glad you're here. I hope you're hungry. Our food's great. Oh, my God. It's the same amount of time transpired, but the outcome's very different, and you go along that line. And once we finish the guest journey, we then look at their training material and we point out to them that in 90% of the cases, maybe higher, the training material talks about nothing in regards to the emotional outcome of the guest. All it is is the mechanics. It's just the service. And so then we weave that in and we talk about that emotional outcome and then we create the employee journey because employees are people too. And they have to have an emotional outcome. What, how are they recruited? How are they treated when they come in for an interview? What's their schedule? So forth and so on. And we go to the whole process of the employee journey, including the legacy, the ones that have worked there before, no longer work there, the pride that they may have or haven't been there. And, and, I, and off we go. And that becomes transformative. You know, and everyone gets engaged in it. Before you know it, everyone's talking about the same thing. Oh, we're here to make people feel special and have a desire to return. And we're special. Look what they're doing for us. And it's not, it's not about money. You, it costs you less money. It's about intent and, and caring and empathy. It's really the biggest piece of this. And that's where I think Danny Meyer, Chick-fil-A, great examples in fine dining and, and casual, or not casual, you know, QSR, that deliver that consistently time and time again. It's no mystery why Chick-fil-A is probably the most valuable private company on the, on the planet. You know, because we don't know what they really do. We know their average is $8 million in six days a week, but God knows what their profitability is. I mean, you probably know better than I would, but it's got to be amazing with that number of restaurants. Yeah, and those AUVs, man, it's, uh, I, I don't have that data, but I'm sure they have excellent store level margins. But, you know, what your points were, were so great. Uh, I, I think um, you do a great job of explaining what you're doing, and it's really giving your employees a purpose, right? And that purpose is help, help 
the customer feel good about their experience, have a nice night night out with their spouse or their kids or whoever it might be, right? It's like, it's so simple, but it's not, I don't think it's easy, right? So I, I guess who, who does this, who outside of Chick-fil-A, no. who else uh, does a good job of this, of, of um, you know, getting their staff to activate the emotions and, and all five senses of their customers? I think the Let Us Entertain Your Restaurants do a good job. Um, Houston's kind of the gold standard. And Houston does yeah. it, frankly, and not, they, look, they don't do a lot of hugs and kisses in Houston. They're like a machine, though, but they, they create such an efficient experience that you feel good about it. And their people are well-trained. They're very high standards. I mean, companies say, I think Bar Taco does a very good job. Yeah. Um, uh, Scott, uh, I, I spoke to him recently at a panel that I interviewed him. And, you know, what he did during COVID was to reimagine his entire service approach because he, he recognized I, I can't get all the people I need. So he's got a, he created a setup now using technology where everyone makes $55,000 an hour, every, I mean, a year, everyone, $55,000 a year, dishwashers. With benefits, you know, only, right? With benefits. And the only one who makes more is bartenders because they, they get to keep the tips of the bar, but everybody else makes the same amount to do tip pulling. They use the technology to have, they basically empower the guests to place their own order. Uh, which everyone's totally qualified to do, but they, they're out there with, you know, service captains really making sure that their guest experience is smooth and it's going well, the food's out on time. It's, it's a wonderful use of technology and at the same time having high touch and high tech side by side. Yeah. The last two times I've been to Bar Taco, the experience was amazing. It was very high touch. I got more, I think I got more attention than I, I, I do anywhere else. Right. Like right. It, it, it was very impressive. Yeah, and when you're ready to go, hit the button, pay your bill, and get up and walk out. You know, and that's the yeah. beautiful thing. Is how many meals are ruined in restaurants because you can't get the waiter or waitress to come with your check, right? Yeah. How many? A lot. And that's what we see in social media. That's the, that's always the, the last ex- experience is what they remember. And if it's negative, it creates an – it just, you know, canvases the entire experience in a bad way. Yeah. Recency bias, right? It's one of the two primary biases. Primary and recency bias are the two main biases human beings have. So, yeah, if, if the experience ends on a low note, it, it's tough. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So you mentioned a little bit about uh, working with emerging brands and putting guardrails on them, whether it be for, for growth or other reasons. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about what your work with those type of chains entails? Yeah, I, I think there it's a, it's a little different. It's to help them have a little bit more discipline, you know, and structure, you know. Now, and this is hard because sometimes like having a 17-year-old teach them how to clean their room, right? Because like they don't want to clean their room. And, you know, the, if you say pick up your socks, they weigh like 100 pounds. But they, they act moan and groan. So it's back again to what's your purpose? You know, why are you here? Who are your guests? You got all this energy around your concept, a lot of press. And that's the problem. You get a lot of press. You think, oh, my God, I walk on water. And, but then we start talking to employees and find out that, you know, even the, the smaller corporates that they may have, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. They don't have structured meetings and communication. They don't have KPIs. They can't define success. You know, they, if you ask them, you know, what they stand for, they can't tell you that. And that's really important. You know, I, again, going back to Danny Myers, you go back to Chick-fil-A, they know why they're there. Okay. They understand why they're there and what direction north is, true north is. You know, they're not guessing. So we put them through the process of beginning to develop that. And then we start talking about their roles and through a combination of like talent development and performance management, begin to define the results they're held accountable for as an individual. And then collectively as a team, we do some strategic planning and we take, an entrepreneur to me is like a floodplain. 
there's water everywhere and it's that it can be destructive discipline and 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 proper management and structure is like a riverbank it takes that water and channels it with energy so now you can have recreation you can you know feed you can water crops you can have uh, you know energy you know and we talk when we teach them that the self-discipline allows you to get more things done people who are disciplined can be spontaneous people who are undisciplined they can do whatever they want but the spontaneity is really it's just a, an excuse for being disorganized and, and lack focus and once you do that uh, it makes a difference in the organization. I, I'll never forget one of my favorite people is Tim McHenry from Cooper's Hawk Winery. You know, I met him when he had, I don't know, three, four restaurants. And we did that with him. And boy, did he follow it to a T. And my God, you know, he's what, $9 million AUVs. He's done very, very well. He's got a new brand he's brought on forward. And, he, and, he's, and he's naturally a great people person. Uh, so he had that quality because he's really humble and authentic. Uh, but then he brought in that self-discipline and brought in the right kind of people to do that. And it's just been fantastic to see that change develop. Yeah, that one's a great story. I remember listening to him a few years back at uh, ICR. Um, they, they've done a heck of a job. It's very cool. Um, all right. So personally, I've always been attracted to building something. I went to Georgetown to help uh, the football program make a leap from Division Three to 1AA. I joined Bloomberg Intelligence in its early days with the goal of helping it become a world-class uh, research program. I think that's that's uh like i think that's meaningful for a lot of people so for that reason i'd imagine uh emerging brands tend to have very strong culture is that is that always the case do you still find adjustments need to be made and are there obstacles uh in improving an already culture that's pretty solid well the answer is yes they have a strong culture now the question is is the culture sustainable and so i get uh Men and women call me up saying, hey, this founder wants me to come in and be their first president. You know, should I go? <laughs> Big, it's a good question, right? And, I, and you know, and it's not like I have, you know, some magic wand or crystal ball to tell what they should or shouldn't do. But I say, you know what? Why don't you find out if we, we will assume that the founder is successful and, and has money. Okay. Well, find out if the next circle of people beneath them is also wealthy. Okay. If the answer is no, don't go there because that means that founder doesn't share. If the answer is yes, then go, because you will also benefit from that as well. Again, Norm Brinker, uh, you know, uh, look at the um, Bloomin' Brands with Outback Steakhouse. How many millionaires came out of that? A lot, yeah. you know? And so, this, and the funny thing is that if the, all your managers and directors and VPs become millionaires, it means there's tens of millions at the top. And that's great, you know, it's even more because the more success is there, it push, they push everyone up. And so that's part of it. And the other, the other aspect of it, and this is where I, I work for Richard Melman, um, you know, who's one of the great restaurateurs out there. And it was fascinating to me because he, he also generated a lot of millionaires out of things. And he was like a, a university for creativity. He was fantastic that way. And what I saw with him, and I was very young at the time and I worked with him, is that initially they were all his ideas, right? So that was the genius of an entrepreneur. They can see what other people can't see. The thing that I found interesting in working with a lot of entrepreneurs in my career is there's a transition from the entrepreneur that can go from just being an entrepreneur and is held back by that because their management skills are weak. They don't have the organizational understanding, things like that. And they don't they have that they fail, but they just don't go to the level that they can. The ones that make this tr profound shift is that they no longer are the originator of all ideas. They're the cultivator of ideas. 
And they recognized the idea. That's what Melman was. He saw an idea that someone else presented to him. And he goes, wow, that's great. We can do something with it. We, not me, we can do something with it. Let's do that. And he helped, you know, bring that along. And that's the difference, you know. That's the difference with an entrepreneur that matures versus an entrepreneur that has to be in control of every decision that's going on. Or no, no, if it didn't come from me, then it's not a good idea. And, yeah. you know, you can go look through the back pages of Nation's Restaurant. You'll figure out which ones those were. You, you just know which ones those were uh, versus the ones that have made the thing where, you know, Danny Meyer, you know, he's not the one that comes up with all the ideas. He's built a huge organization that has ex exceptional because he's a lot other people to come forward and, and take credit. He'll still get credit for it at some point, which is fine, but he's not the sole originator is the cultivator of ideas and therefore other people. Yeah. It goes back to the employees, right. And giving them the, the freedom and the responsibility to, to, you know, make decisions and, and flourish. Right. Yeah, well, look at Todd Graves at Raising Cane's. I mean, look, watch out. That that brand is, you know, he's not an overnight success. I mean, I met Todd when he was still working at oil rigs, you know, and tuna boats. You know, he was raising money for his first restaurant. And look at the great success. But he had singularly focused on his culture. And I think he calls it one love. Um, and, and it's sincere. I mean, he's always had his business card, you know, chief bottle washer, dishwasher, whatever, you know. He's, and he doesn't do it out of like, oh, let's be cute. No, no, this is humility in practice, he sets the example and, and he's achieved tremendous success because of that. Uh, and his volumes are very high. It's a mono concept like Chick-fil-A and, and In-N-Out Burger, but look out world, he's he's on the rise. It's gonna, you know, like now everyone talks about Chick-fil-A, but they started when McDonald's was the king. Look at them now. And I think uh, Raising Cane and, and, and Todd specifically are, are gonna pe show people that culture makes a big difference. It's the secret sauce for great brands. Yeah, it's great to see. All right, so everybody's trying to play catch up here over the last few years with technology. Um, you know, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of good decisions, a lot of poor decisions. You know, how critical uh, is it, uh, you know, for the restaurant chain's importance, right? Like success right now, uh, how important is it to develop the right tech stack and bring on the right technology partners? Oh, it's a must have. I mean, it's a price of entry now. You can't do a restaurant concept without it. And what I love, I'm going to be going to the Food and the Man conference in May. I love that conference because those are all the millennials who their relationship with technology is so different than even you and definitely me, right? I, you know, I'm a pioneer. Your generation sort of built the stuff. They were born with it. You know, they're, they're, they had an iPad in their hand at two years old. Um, and they're, they're, the way they see technology and its application to the restaurant industry is amazing. So it, it's a must have. Now, there's different there's a tremendous amount of technology. We could spend three hours talking about technology, but if you break it down to say there's customer facing technology in the front of the house, in the back there's operational technology, which includes the economy and the scheduling and the KDS and so forth and so on, the POS and all that stuff. There is also um, what I'll call sort of that off-premise revenue generating technology, apps, smartphones, all the responsive websites, that technology. And then the last quadrant that I talk about is where the data is. Okay, because ultimately that's where the money is. All these other technologies generate a lot of data. Okay, uh, and we're drowning in data, but we're starved for knowledge. And so the data mining is where it really gets critical because not only will I be able to understand, you know, how to be more efficient with my labor and productivity and things like that and my food costs, and, so, and then I can monitor my refrigerators and freezers and all, but I also understand my guests and I understand what their preferences are and I'm able to do it. Now, there's a lot of anonymization that takes place, but you can still get some great data out of certain companies that pull together. But the key part of it, it all has to be integrated. 
And a lot of people during the pandemic just grab whatever they could because all the realize, oh my God, if I don't do this, I'm gone, right? Because all of a sudden you, yeah. you had no, you know, there's five channels, right? Premise, the on-premise dining, then takeout, delivery, catering, and drive-through. If, if you're a QSR, well, when on, you know, on-premise dining was the big early, that was gone. It, all of a sudden, the channels became important, and they stayed. You know, the people might have been doing 30, 40 percent in off-premise uh, sales during the COVID. But when it all came back, they're still doing 15%. That's significant. And you don't hear so much, and that you appreciate this. Before I was saying, oh, what's your what's your you know, your guest count? How many, you know, what's your footfall if you're in the UK? Now it's what's my square footage? You know, what are my sales per square feet? Because you realize that it's the sales they generate by square foot that is the ultimate measure, which includes that off-premise delivery and catering, so forth and so on, yeah. that can add to your bottom line. And so it's it's important to have everything talked, to have good integration. Uh, we're also going through a lot of disruption with POS. You're going from the client-server model to a cloud-based system. And the cloud-based systems are better, but they're not perfect, and you got to be careful. And you also have to look at your concept. You know, what am I trying to accomplish with it? Because a, a sit-down restaurant versus QSR, fast casual, drive-through, different needs from a technology standpoint. And we're seeing more and more, uh, you know, changes there. If you look at, you know, PARs, you know, probably one of the better cloud-based systems. Um, you know, they bought loyalty companies, they bought other organizations to come in and, and do that to try and really, you know, not, not to be one stop shopping, but really show what the integration can try and do. Others like Revel have always been a little bit on the forefront with the iPad, uh, but it, it keeps on shifting. And the big boys, you know, the micros and NCRs have had to adapt very, very quickly. They've lost a lot of market share to these young upstarts. Yeah, and there's been a lot of integration in, into the uh, POS systems. They're, they're allowing a lot more, but... Uh... You know, is that enough or do you think we'll see some more consolidation in restaurant tech? Oh, no, they'll continue to be consolidation. I mean, Olo has been on a bit of a buying spree besides yeah. PAR. It's inevitable. I mean, you know, when you're, especially if you're working on a responsive website and you're going to do at the initial, at the beginning, I remember we did a lot of work with um, companies when they started using apps and your loyalty program and your online ordering program had to be two separate logins, which made no sense. Ultimately, there was an API that allowed them to talk to one another. So there will continue to be consolidation. And frankly, some of the tech companies, they're not a company, they're a feature. Um, you know, we saw that in the days of Microsoft, companies would start just to be bought by Microsoft. Then it became, let's start something to be bought by Apple. Um, and, you know, like a flashlight app, you know, remember those are a flashlight app. Oh, wow, that's cool. Then Apple said, hey, we're, we're gonna turn the flashlight on or off if we want to, stuff like that. And and so so you, your, your, your POS system is critical because while in the old days, the POS was the sort of the solar system, it was the sun of everything rolled around it. There's been a lot of disintermediation of POS because now it's on your app. You know, I don't go into a Starbucks and stand in line. I go into a Starbucks, order my coffee off the app and just go pick it up because I get a priority. You know, a lot of people just don't know that. They, they start, oh, I got to go stand in line. No, you don't. Just place the order. It's going to show up in that in that ticket immediately. You know, and those are the things that are going to continue to change. Uh, is how we leverage technology to our benefit. And of course, that same smartphone lets you order is the same smartphone that other technologies follow you to know where you came from, where you're going to, to have a better sense of how to communicate with you. So it's true one-to-one -one marketing. That's another part that's really changed with the use of technology. Besides all the efficiencies you get in the back end with robots, that's really big. I mean, right now to pay a cashier in California 22 bucks an hour, not kiosk, easy decision. You know, because the guests wants to control their experience anyway. They don't complain about standing in line. They just get up to the kiosk and order what they want and order more. And you can have blinking lights and pictures and so forth and so on. So it will continue to change and evolve. And that's why I enjoy the Food of the Man conference because the early, all that change is happening with those people that show up at that conference. Nice. It was a good, nice plug. 
so are you still the CEO of Engelman's uh, Bakery? Uh, what, what have you learned spending some time on the other side of the table as a food service provider? Uh, yes, I am. Um, it's been a great experience. I started that in June of 20 after COVID hit. Um, I was on the board and COVID hit and sales dropped by 60%. And they asked, the, the, you know, the managing partner of the, the equity firm that owns it asked me to go down and, and see if I could help them with a, um, you know, a sales plan. And when I went down, um, I realized that, uh, you know, they didn't, they didn't know what to do and not because anyone knew what to do. I mean, June of 20, who knew what was going on? The, the world's coming to an end. So what we uh, managed to do was they asked me to, to take over the company and I, I agreed to it, you know, because in my consulting practice, basically we were working for free. We helped a lot of companies to help them with all this, taking their tax tech and stuff like that. But it's, to get on the manufacturing side was a great experience for me uh, because it takes a $2 million machine to make a 30 cent bun. Uh, and then we, then we understood how, how can we grow sales? And, you know, I'm happy with the results that we, we more than, uh, you know, doubled sales from the original amount that we had when we bought it. We, we've got very high profitability when the process of uh, buying more bakeries and all the restaurant stuff still applies. And I, I always joke with people. I said, you know, my, my salespeople are like servers. Okay. My bakers are like cooks. My delivery drivers are like food runners, you know, and I, and I, and I use that as an analogy because it's, it sort of sees, you can see the levers of the business in terms of how it goes. So I've learned a, a tremendous amount and a lot more respect for what manufacturers have to go through during COVID trying to get product. Oh my God. Supply chain was an issue. My, you know, my flour price is up by 60%. My labor has gone up by 40%. You know, it's a, it's a real thing. And you gotta, and you gotta, you know, you gotta manage the business profitably. So, and, and also helping restaurants as best as we can, because that's our ultimate customers, giving them a product that they serve to their guests that they put into their body and to make sure that they feel good about that. Uh, it's very cool. And I saw a video you posted on LinkedIn about Engelman's and, you know, you put your money where your mouth is, right? There was uh, it was a highlighting a bunch of employees that had been uh, working for the company for a super long time, and it it wasn't about all the accomplishments and what management was able to do. It was about you know the people that are working there on the front lines and busting their butts every day, making Engelman's yeah. what it is. No, that's exactly what it is. You got to. I had to practice what I preach, uh, and guess what? It works. You, you take care of those people. <laughs> it's, it's that stakeholder mentality out of conscious capitalism. Everybody matters. It's it's not just the shareholders. It's the stakeholders, the employees, your vendors, your customers, the community. We, we are working with, a, you know, because it's hard to get labor. So I started working with a couple of, uh, uh, you know, companies. They're charities where they help people come out of prison and get uh, brought back into normal life or out of addiction. We've got quite a, quite a few people who are former drug addicts. Um, who are not trying to get their feet back on the ground. And let me tell you something. When you can take a woman in her 30s who has three kids and it's, they've been taken away by Child Protective Services because they're a meth addict and they're there to get back on the, their feet back on the ground and, they, and we hire them as temps initially because they got to sh show us that they can come to work and be a good worker and then to offer them a permanent job with enough money where they can afford an apartment to get their kids back and they burst into tears when you offer them that job. There is something about that that you just can't put into words, uh, how rewarding it is and the sense of achievement for them. We just had another one that we did it for, and she got an apartment, but she, had, she doesn't have a lot of money. And so we all pitched in, and we got her a bedroom set and sheets and linens for her two kids so that they could have a bed to sleep in at night. You know, that's really fulfilling. You know, And so that's part of that stakeholder mentality that I'm talking about. In fact, our purpose at the 
our purpose of the bakery is we nourish lives. Uh, which ha if you think about it from a stakeholder standpoint, it addresses the food aspect of it, as well as the fact that we're taking care of our guests, we're taking care of, not guests, our customers, and we're taking care of our employees. It's awesome. Uh, yeah, conscious con capitalism. I know that's been um, me really meaningful for you for, for quite some time. How long have you been associated with conscious capitalism now? Uh, over 10 years. Um, in, in fact, ironically, the new CEO of conscious capitalism, Karen Salmon, who was the former CEO of PAR, technologies and I'm the one that dragged her there and she likes to tell the story because she goes I don't have time I don't have the money to do that I said take vacation pay for out of your pocket you will appreciate it and she went and she just fell in love with what they were doing and they hired her as the CEO which is great to see that so it's uh it's that's also very rewarding to see that change and, and in fact I was honored uh this past year at the conscious capitalism CEO summit uh, I was selected as the, you know, high impact conscious capitalist business person of the year. It was like, it was named after a gentleman who passed away during COVID out of, from Columbia, who was a great restaurateur who I got, who I got to know. And that was a surprise and a very, very big honor. So I didn't anticipate that. It was just, it was, That's it was very nice cool. to be recognized for that. Very cool. And, and well-deserved. Thank you. Without a doubt. Y yeah. Since I've known you for quite some time and you, and you've always, uh, you know, it, it's always been about about for your people and, and doing good and having a purpose. And, uh, you know, so you definitely practice what you preach, what you preach there. So, uh, I recently found out we have something in common. Uh, you carry a memento Mori coin. I had it tattooed yes. on my chest. Uh, oh, so I didn't you have a, that. yeah, yeah. Uh, had it done last year. Uh, a big part of that was, um, I felt that a lot of time was wasted, uh, during the pandemic and lockdowns. Um, not that I was, wasn't busy and not that I was, um, uh, wasn't very productive, but, uh, just, there's a lot of things I want to do before the end of my life. And I wanted a reminder there for myself that, uh, life is short and, and, you know, don't waste any time. Right. So well, that's, that's awesome. Well, thanks, man. So, so do you have a favorite Stoic philosopher or a written work or anyone that, that speaks to you? Well, Ryan Holiday, you know, he's the one that's taken, you know, Marcus Aurelius and Seneca and all those people have brought it forward. And uh, I love his books. They're, they're fantastic. And, and I'll, I'll be a little bit vulnerable here. Part of what drove it, I just passed my third anniversary of having my cancer surgery for prostate cancer. Um, and the first time I spoke about it publicly was a couple of years ago at, at the Conscious Capitalism CEO Summit because they asked me to talk about it. I didn't want to talk about it. So I'm a private person, but it was a gift that I did because I showed people that I cared the momentum more, you know, remember, you'll die. Um, and it was, it was, a, it, you know, because one of the things I realized, because um, we have your, you know, someone says you have cancer, it's like, oh, shit, you know, <laughs> your humanity is right in your face. Um, and what it taught me was that I may not know how I'm going to die specifically. None of us do. But I can choose how to live. And and that's really what, uh, you know, I picked up. And the the foundation of the Stoic philosophy is not what happens to you. It's what you do about what happens and your approach yeah. to it. And I just said, I'm not going to be a victim of this. I'm going to live my life to its fullest. I took the job at Engelman's, you know, three months after my surgery. Uh, my wife and I talked about it. I mean, I could have retired. Um, and, you know, we talked about it. She goes, look, you love doing what you do. Go do it. You know, don't sit around here. What are you going to do? you know, count the days. And uh, it's been three years and I'm blessed to have an amazing wife who has supported me and uh, it makes a big difference. And every day is a gift. Every day is a gift. And that Memento Mori, I travel with that Memento Mori coin. Uh, and I've given a few away to people that I meet, that I move by their story when they share it with me. And because I have, a, not, not that I have a collection at home, but I'll just go buy another one and carry it. But uh, I got to talk to uh, Lauren about 
the tattoo thing. I've never had a tattoo, but uh, that, that's an interesting idea. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, please say hi to Lauren. She's absolutely fantastic. You're a lucky guy. Um, and thanks again for doing this. Thanks for all you've taught me about the restaurant business, all the personal connections you made for me over the years. Uh, I'm lucky to call you a friend. Oh, I appreciate it. I feel the same way. All right. It means a lot. Uh, Thank you. Of course. And uh, where can our listeners go to find out more about Results Through Strategy? Well, just go to our website, Results Through Strategies, T-H-R-U in the middle. Um, and also we have good presence on LinkedIn and, uh, you can, you can find us there and see what we do. We do a lot. We, we have, have great partners. We do a lot of, you know, a lot of different work in the industry. We post a lot. We're always a resource. We're not like attorneys that charge you a lot of money for a 15 minute conversation. We love this industry. We want to give back to it. So it's part of our philosophy. All right. Good stuff. Thanks for listening everybody. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.